0: I've heard you say a couple of things today. I, I like this idea of find your wasta. I think uh, in in the early days and even now, you know, I'm like, we, we're starting in Saudi or we started in Saudi. So uh, I'm trying to build my network very deep, but uh, you vocalized it in a way that I hadn't thought about it, but find your wasta, uh, focus on the next milestone, don't get distracted or let the end journey be daunting. Um, This idea of being confident that you know your space Mm -hmm. and not getting too hung up on what investors say in the early days. Uh, I like this idea of ask for quick responses from your support team. They probably have a lot of good uh, ideas. Thanks for joining another episode of Talks with Tea, Um, joined today by Mark uh, Shahwan, uh, founder of Sarwa, co-founder of Sarwa. What is Sarwa?
1: Sarwa is an investment platform, basically, that helps you invest into the stock market in a very easy way that's not complicated without a high minimum or high fees. So we've made basically investing, which was something that was intimidating for a a lot of people, easy so that they can put their money to work. So they invest in stocks, ETFs, even crypto, so that instead of having your money lose out to inflation, you're able to participate and invest the same way high net worth individuals have been doing for so long. Awesome, and uh,
0: Sarwa means revolution, right? That's, that's the, Thawra. Thawra, okay, it shows you the level of my Arabic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, so. Uh, But I I love the parallel, to be fair. Yeah,
0: this whole time I thought you were starting the financial revolution of the Middle East. And so I was like, what a great name. He just took Thawra and turned it into the way a Lebanese person would say it and Saru was born. No, we've stayed out of politics, but we enjoyed that parallel. It means fortune, actually, or or wealth. So we kept it simple. You took the more optimistic, the (laughs) the positive connotation. Yeah. Um, We were just talking before we started recording about how... uh, you ended up here in Dubai. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So I was, I was saying, basically I grew up in Montreal and, but I'm originally Lebanese. So after a few years, a few years of working in consulting and and finance, it was more of an inwards journey. Actually, I realized, I started asking myself, what are some of the areas that I'm passionate about? What's a project I would like to dedicate um, a couple of years, if not a decade working on. And it was about technology, and finance and building something that would benefit or, or scratch my itch or would benefit my friends and family. So it led to investing and wanting to be closer to my parents and back home. That that started to to, lead, to look at what are some of the areas where a lot of young people are moving and making money in a tax-free environment. So it went. it started more as an idea, and the more we looked at it, it started to shape up. Where where did this itch come from? To go back, you mean to, to the Middle East or entrepreneurship? The, to start something. Yeah, I think I've always had it yeah. uh, as a kid. For I was really inclined towards whether it's movies, stories or pe- the type of people I um, I looked up to. I knew eventually it was something that I wanted to to get into. It was just not sure when and what was the on what I would be working on. Mm. So that took me until after a few years of working to realize you never, yeah, to realize you're ne- you're never really ready. You have to take a leap of faith. So until I, I realized a lot a lot of people are actually winging it or learning on the go. Once I figured that out in consulting, uh, I felt all right. My salary is only going to go one way, so and it's going to be more difficult to to make the jump. So let's start as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, it's. Um <clears throat> one thing that's a recurring theme interestingly is many entrepreneurs i've spoken to and they've said I, I kind of always had it in me mm. and so it's made me reflect on i wonder if we're all born with this desire to create build yeah and then somewhere along our growing up journey whether it's school or adults maybe mm-hmm beating that out of us that you have the ability and you're not ready. And so coming to this realization that you're never ready, mm-hmm. I think is quite a liberating viewpoint
1: because it provides a perspective that anyone can just start. Yeah. Another thing I read yesterday that I liked, it's uh, it was more of a title of an article that said immigrants mm-hmm. are entrepreneurs and And the case they were trying to make in the summary at least is that when you move to a new country mm. you, it's you're an entrepreneur, you're figuring out a lot of mm. a, a lot of a different environment yeah and adapting to it so I feel like there's an overlap there where a lot fair. of us were shaped to adapt to a new a new country, yeah, and that builds up a certain DNA that you're much more prone or ready to do it again,
0: yeah, yeah, fair probably one of the foundational elements of being an entrepreneur is getting comfortable with being uncomfortable mm-hmm. and so when you're an immigrant or you move to a new country I think it's easier to, s- to relate to that feeling when you're a kid and you know that first day of school that feeling in your stomach the day before school starts <laughs> you know the new school year it's that same feeling when you move to a new country where the, the air smells different or the bed you're sleeping in doesn't feel like home mm-hmm. uh, it's so you get ingrained with this learn how to adapt you're feeling uncomfortable it's okay you'll Mm -hmm. find a way until today actually yeah and it's I picked on I picked up on something which you didn't say so I could be wrong here when we were talking it seems like your mom had an impact on a profound impact on
1: on you yeah, big time. My mom likes to joke that she was studying the mutual, the first uh, mutual funds course in Canada when okay. she was pregnant with me. <laughs> and that's why now I'm-, <laughs> she, I'm, I'm she passed <laughs> it to the umbilical cord. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the the V2 of mutual funds are ETFs and what, what Sarwa focuses a lot on. Um, but yeah, she had a huge impact more from just us being really close, uh, watching her like, in her career as a banker and the impact she's had. Uh, to a lot of people around us. And also, whenever I brought the idea of I wanna be, I wanna look into this, I wanna explore launching Sarwa, I think it can help a lot of people. She was she started introducing me to some, well, to one person that lived in Dubai, actually. And he invited me for the first time to to, visit Dubai. And he actually introduced me to, to a couple of people. They were in private equity, so this was way too early for yeah. them. But it was a it it was she participated in trying to make the idea more, um, just pushing it one step further, so that it, it can become, it become it can become something, nice. what it is today. Yeah. Nice. So she
0: nurtured your thoughts and your desire to go out and do something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And we were talking about how luck
1: to a certain extent, plays a role mm-hmm. in the story, right? With Accenture and... Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think for, for me it was, it was um, not that I am believing in, in a lot of forces or anything but when I was at Accenture exploring Sarwa yeah. and moving to Dubai, Accenture du- Dubai partnered with the DIFC that was launching the first FinTech Accelerator. So that again made it uh, lucky in the sense that I had a contact to reach out to to the person managing the Accelerator and they were looking only at post-revenue companies. We mm. weren't. We weren't even a company. Yeah. So just an yeah, idea. Yeah, exactly. So that that helped in the sense of uh, obviously a lot. A lot of. The, if you don't know as a listener, like the word Wasta, you need some sort of Wasta to. Yeah. And uh, the entrepreneurial journey to kind of get through on, uh, unofficial channels as well. So so having that luck to, and more validation that fintech is about to become something big in uh, in the middle east was really really good as a as a way to to make the leap and i've seen it's sometimes very difficult in the early days to know what is the first milestone that you need to reach what is success versus leave it it can be super overwhelming to have an indefinite journey right so for us when i spoke to my started speaking to jad my first co-founder we define success as getting into that accelerator because getting into that accelerator means instead of having millions of dollars as regulatory capital, they were saying we would lower that to $10,000. So immediately the idea of us at 25 years old raising $10,000 isn't so impossible anymore. And so defining the success as how can we get into that accelerator was the first milestone. And then it was all right, we got into this accelerator, time to go to Dubai. And the, we started defining the next step after, which is, can we get a license to do what we wanted to do? So it was almost like in three months chunks to just make sure that doesn't get too overwhelming in the early days.
0: Yeah. What's your
1: co-founder journey? So Jad has been, um, is the first one that joined me okay. and he, he was—he's been um, my best friend since we were ten years old. Okay. So a classmate, and he also went to McGill. So he, he can—he was in Lebanon. I went to Montreal first. Then he—he he joined in uh, McGill. He studied software engineering. And he was working at a high-speed hedge fund, actually, in parallel. And he was he's, he was thinking of doing something completely different. Yeah. Um, I convinced him otherwise. <laughs> I convinced him otherwise, and he was very sold from the beginning, actually. And after a few, uh, as soon as we moved to Dubai, yeah. then we realized, all right, fintech and regulation is a, is a beast on its own. So yeah. if he's spending time developing it and I'm spending time on re- regulation, we need someone to to help us market this thing. Yeah. And we knew Nadine, uh, who was a sister of a very close friend, and she had helped us for free while we were still in Montreal working on the website because mm. we didn't want the website to look like Uh, we completely missed what Dubai was about. So we had sent her, hey, this is the brand, can you give us some tips on just not look like we're completely off in terms of uh, what the culture, the colors, the buildings. And she helped us, she sent us like this super long uh, email around, this is what you need to know about Dubai and by by segment. basically shot on your your initial (laughs) idea (laughs) in a nice way. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And then, uh, we worked with her for a few weeks to see if we would be a good fit because we didn't know each other. Yeah. And initially, we, we didn't know we, we would team up as a co-founding team, but it became very clear that uh, the three of us would work really well together.
0: Mm. What were, wh- so it sounds like you and Jad from the beginning were uh, kind of in this and then Nadine the joined mm-hmm. along the journey a lot of discussions we have on the podcast revolve around Mm solopreneur versus uh, founding team. So how do you go about having that conversation with someone like Nadine? Mm -hmm. Um, And how do you identify that someone like Nadine is kind of the missing piece of of the puzzle?
1: Yeah, for us, it was really based on... um, what we needed at the time. The awareness came from understanding that, to do it justice, we need someone really leading on marketing and building a brand. And to not have a co-founder do that would be maybe not giving it enough importance. Mm. So that was a bit of the first trigger. Mm. The CTO, I think, is everyone agree, well not, I would say most people agree that you need a technical co-founder. and i've seen like a, you get so much more agility and skin in the game from that than an outsourced mm. tech function mm. um i think some vcs even don't invest if you don't have a technical founder Yeah. everything beyond that i think is people have their you have more coos cmos and mm. i've seen so many different versions of it but on our end we knew that we needed to build a strong financial brand uh, so so that's how we went about it
0: yeah this amazing uh uh, foresight to have to be able to say that you know to be successful on the B2c fintech mm-hmm. side we need uh, we need a strong brand from the get-go so that's mm-hmm. uh, pretty amazing for- foresight from you guys mm-hmm. so you you guys to a certain extent when I think about it are like the the four the two forefathers and foremother of mm-hmm. the IFC regulation I mean and I remember uh, we were uh, we were talking about doing stuff around 2015 in kind of the fintech space and getting regulated mm-hmm. and we were, it was too daunting we're like screw it it's like trying to push
1: a boulder uphill but you guys kind of took it head on yeah exactly so as soon as we the thing is when we moved we had a lot of urgency to to just un, un, we really wanted to know is this possible or not and what this accelerator did, there's a, there were a few people that ultimately needed to show that Dubai can become a fintech hub. Mm. So that's why I mentioned luck as well, is because the timing was right in the sense that um, you needed an ally, which was the DIFC in this case, and mm. in the Raja that we spoke about earlier was was someone that w- that wanted to... To see change happen mm. so she was a very strong ally and the de- regulator also wanted a win to be able to say we can regulate uh, technology mm. and in that sense uh yeah the first few months were completely about a lot of these meetings and and just figuring out all of the the loopholes in the system to yeah. be regulated as a as a fintech yeah and how do
0: you because uh, to a certain extent in the philosophy we've had Uh, as co-founders at Bezat, was to almost avoid or sidestep situations where our destiny or our future is out of our control and can't be determined by anyone because we got burnt early in the insurance space and Mm -hmm. we were relying on partners that didn't pan out. So we took that approach. Uh, And so in your case, you worked very closely with an entity who, in this case the DIFC, who could determine the future viability of the business. So how did you avoid or manage the potential to get discouraged or Mm -hmm. lose faith, especially in the context that you have high level of urgency Mm -hmm. and that urgency may not always be
1: mirrored by a partner yeah. who maybe doesn't move at the same pace. Yeah, no, spot on. F- for me, I think it was, I generally like challenges. Mm. And it was big enough of a challenge that, um, and I felt it was possible because there was a drive, um, like that's a bit bigger than what we were doing, right? Mm-hmm. So I felt that there could be a, a good timing to push and be that um, enabler that brings it, that ties it all together. Yeah. Because we started interacting with banks with the regulators, with the financial center. And, and all of them seemed to want to do something. Okay. So we felt like you needed a bit of that. And I started thinking if we go through this also competitively, the, eventually my mindset became the more hurdles were, uh, were arising. I was kind of happy because I'm like, okay, someone else is going to have to go through this. Mm. And this is a huge mm. turnoff for a lot of people that if we go through it, that's going to be an edge on its own. And eventually, when we got licensed, typically getting licensed, at least for me, wasn't a that much. It's a milestone. It's not a celebration. Yeah. But Sarwa, when we got licensed, there was a lot of press actually around it. Yeah. And I, it's, it tells you how unusual it is, mm-hmm. and that was just another signal around how early it is, early days for a fintech because you're celebrating just, just starting. Yeah. yeah.
0: What have you celebrated over the course of Sarwa's life? It's a trick question because yeah. <laughs> I imagine most entrepreneurs just get through the milestone yeah, and move to the next one. We so.
1: barely, yeah. I'm honestly guilty of that, so yeah. I can't think of a proper one. What we did get better at celebrating the year end, to be fair. Okay. So we have uh, we host our like Christmas party, yeah, or year end party. But yeah, barely, no, not enough. <laughs> honestly. Still, uh, still going at it,
0: and. Um, you know a lot of when you when you talk a lot of the things you talk about seem to be things that are uh, bigger than just you or bigger than uh, what many would perceive is kind of the immediate goal let me let me elaborate what I'm saying so when you talk about Sarwa you said you want to build a business that's going to help people when you talk about going through the challenge of the IFC, you talked about paving the path for other people. So it seems like a lot of what you what drives you is this kind of building for other people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think building, creating, simplifying, making something that's unfair or expensive, easier. And especially in finance, I was I was I, I was Exposed to the passive industry, and, and I'll explain what that is, at a very young age. Where my first job, we were four people managing 80 billion dollars, and our performance in equities was amazing, and it outperformed a lot of um, our our peers that were constantly trying to pick stocks and and were managing much more. And I that inconsistency really uh, marked me because I didn't understand how come there was more money being poured into suboptimal ways of investing mm. and i realized a lot of people didn't know that or had access to even to the tools that uh, that a lot of people with money have so yeah. so yeah i really like definitely that idea of democratizing it because there's just so much misinformation around investing that mm. once you've found a method that works um it's it just removes a big stress, uh, and and the feedback you get actually from customers really energizes you mm. on a frequent basis. That says, "Wow, I used to look at trading and I lost so much money, and now I have a proven way for the rest of my life to follow." So that's a that's a really big, like every time we do an event, and I, and we st- still do them today. I love doing them, where you you just get a lot of validation from customers that appreciate your product and and tell you this is this has changed. My, my financial life and we all know how much that, that can lead to a, a source of stress or or, um, or the opposite
0: but it seems to a certain extent those kinds of things are as big or a bigger motivation than the potential upside of building Sarwa into the potential financial upside of being successful with Sarwa and mm-hmm. that's my point that it seems like you're much more driven by the people impact of what you're doing with Sarwa and the impact on society, seems like you're equally or more driven by that than hey, I can potentially at some point exit Sarwa and yeah have a big financial outcome.
1: Yeah, I would say that. Th- there's so many elements there. Obviously, all of them are important, but um, the freedom also that comes with building your own company mm. and working on a problem that you, en- you enjoy working and solving they, a lot of things start to add up because especially in the journey, you realize it's it's not gonna be the two to three year yeah. journey that a lot of us think we're Yeah. When we're you first jump
0: on. into it, you're like in four years, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I think we had to believe
1: that because otherwise if we thought it was a 10, 15 year slog Of course. Yeah, and that's that's I give that credit to a friend called Rami. He started businesses when he was really young. Yeah. And he he started three businesses. He and after his third, I asked him like, "What is the the main learning from from having to start again and not working out?" He told me honestly, it's getting it's liking the idea. I realized that I would get super excited in the beginning. I would start something, and then after a while, I lose the momentum and the interest in solving that problem. So whatever you work on next, make sure that you can work on that for a long time and be excited about it.
0: It's mm, mm, good advice so to a certain extent you said that you realized you're never, you're never ready to start and you jump in mm-hmm. and you're going to figure it out along the way uh, as, as you go you started at a relatively young age how did you have the confidence to say I, 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 I'm going to execute on a weekly basis on a daily basis even today how do you mm-hmm. find the confidence say this makes sense, this is what we're doing, this is where we're going. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you probably, know, based on the way your face looks, is like I've never even thought of, of this, uh, this question, which is, which is, you know, uh, to a certain extent,
1: uh, somewhat telling, because you've just, it sounds like it's just kind of, it's there, you don't, you don't overthink it. Yeah, just honestly, I remember in consulting, yeah. I would, be sometimes like I would often be really impressed by my colleagues, yeah. and I, I, I remember there was one day one partner really did a fantastic job, and and after like after the client left and everything, I was telling him, can you can you walk me through how you you got to that and and his answer was like oh, I'm just improvising just as much as you, so my guess is as good as you towards this task. Mm. Do you want to take a first pass at it? So that that I think consulting really forms you in a certain way also mm. to you're just often thrown into a, a client situation where you're supposedly the expert but you're figuring it out on the fly yeah right a lot of these consultants their most project I believe they're they're solving this problem for the first time very rarely have I seen projects where you really solve the same exact thing yeah before so I think it's this programming to as as you we were saying, to get comfortable with a new situation, mm. and and that confidence, when, once you've done, I guess back to my mom, she always yeah. says uh, when, whenever I get a bad grade, she used to say, Johnny, what was it? Keep walking, Johnny yeah. Walker. Yeah, yeah. She's, now that I think about it, super <laughs> random as a as a whiskey brand, but yeah, uh, yeah you just roll with the punches and, yeah. uh, and and continue. But you also have enough wins that you have confidence that in the past you were able to. To get that, to get a good grade or to to perform well, that it should it's it's still in you. Mm.
0: So I mean, the the to a large extent where you decided to start was first, uh, to first of its kind in the region. Mm-hmm. What were some of the hurdles, challenges you had to kind of continue to overcome mm-hmm. once you became licensed?
1: Yeah, I would say. It, we have a difficult job to convince people to give us their life savings, mm. right? So building trust is, um, is something that we really focused on in the early days to build the platform in, in the in the best ways possible that are that will inspire trust. So and we typically in in our business trust comes purely from being old. Yeah. I mean, we're an old bank. We've been in business mm. for mm. hundreds of years, a hundred years. Yeah. So. In our ways, we're super, we're very young, so we have to think about it in a very different way. Mm. Um, So transparency, we started breaking it down and understanding what are the ways that we can do that. So transparency, making sure the partners or the brokers we work with are very trustworthy. Um, And that on its own was actually quite a challenge because when we would talk to banks or brokerages in the US to tell them we're at a new startup in Dubai that wants to work with them, some of them wouldn't return our, our messages or our calls. Mm. So that was quite a challenge to know who do you, who do you build on top of as, a, as an investment platform because you're not going to build it. What Sarwa is today, like took time through licenses and, and many iterations before before we got here, before we had to rely on someone else's brand, which was Interactive Brokers, to say, hey, your money's safe with them but we're going to help you optimize it and man- and, and advise on it. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit of a challenge uh, and it still is in a lot of ways to also educate people on investing. It's a, like we've learned, it's a lot of, there's, a, it's really driven by psychology and mm-hmm. we ha- we were not really taught how to manage money or how to invest in school. So each one has their own path. They come with their own stories or baggage or sometimes zero knowledge. So you have to, just either add a lot of knowledge or remove some of the things they, they've they learned uh, so that you can improve their financial performance.
0: And what are, if there was things you wished were baseline understanding around mm-hmm. investing, right? So something every kid should learn in school. Mm-hmm. What are
1: the foundational principles First of all, you have to do it because if you're not investing, your money is losing to inflation. So I would explain the Big Mac index and just show that the price of a Big Mac um, increases with time. And it's a proxy for basically the price of things increasing. So there's Mm -hmm. a way to to eventually money is important and you need to make money. And there's a smarter way than just working hard and relying on your income. There's a, so I would explain the concept of inflation. I would explain the concept of uh, beating wait, tools of, in, of beating inflation, generating a second stream of income through investing and not, not just relying on salary and, and what you do. Because, yeah, these are some of the themes I would touch on even um, if we look at the Forbes 400 wealthiest people and how they've generated their wealth. It's not from their income; mm. it's from their investing. Mm. So, if the purpose is of investing is to make money, or if the if the purpose of anything um, as a mission is to make money, yeah. the best way to get there is through this thing called investing, and not through your income. Mm. So, and then once you explore that world of investing, you start to see how are the greats, what is the best way to do to do well in a consistent manner, and. Um, how can you, where do you start? So, yeah, there's a lot of ways as I'm realizing, but yeah, its importance is, is life changing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think to a large extent, people are undereducated about financial literacy, and mm-hmm. in this part of the world, even more so. Um, I heard a statistic, I, I don't know how true it is, but it was from a VC. Mm-hmm. They were saying that in, in the region, Where uh, uh, percent of uh, GDP where you know savings are uh, in the Middle East is less by a factor of five x versus developed markets. So how much we actually save versus developed markets
1: were pretty much eighty percent lower. Uh, Mm -hmm. I could uh, see that. We see a nationality being a key driver in. And our behavior. So you see, for example, Indians w- are and still are like a big part of our top five nationalities, and mm. the, and it's very cultural mm. because they come here and they've they've just gotten used to a lot. To they have an invest and in, in a saving, investing culture. Uh, Arabs were more put money under the mattress type of. If you, if yeah. you talk to. Um, your parents or your grandparents were more of a saving even on, in, in a good way. But mm. in general, we haven't been exposed to uh, retirement plans or products yeah. prior that make you think of um, of, uh, reti- or of an, or starting earlier. Yeah. Yeah. But that's changing. I think there's, given with it like Reddit, YouTube, there's a lot more awareness. Mm. And when you understand you can work 10 years less, you can buy a second home and... Like once you understand the magnitude of how much it could change your financial picture, there's then you then you understand why you need to do it.
0: Mm. And so you started u three, mm-hmm. and then today you're
1: fifty-ish. Yeah.
0: Tell me about the journey of building the company.
1: Yeah, I, for us we started um, similar to how we we discussed like Nadine joining us. It started with also all right, well we're gonna need people that were advising on investing, so we had Danny, who was at UBS uh, back then, join us. So one of the best private banks, but he was also passionate about joining and not just helping people with 10 million plus, but with a few thousand dollars as well. And then we started to add uh, to build out a marketing team, customer support, and just think of every think of the company more as uh, different functions. Mm. That was the first layer, I think, and the founding team. To really uh, get it off the ground, I would say the second stage was all right. Building a leadership team so that we can have uh, people that really own their functions because we were were going a bit crazy doing uh, wearing too many hats Mm. at some point. And I think that was a really pivotal moment to getting where we are today. Where it gets once you have the leadership team uh, figured out, a lot of things follow after that. Mm.
0: Mm. There's always this discussion about do you hire. The person who's going to lead the function versus hiring an individual contributor. I mean, you're mm. taking on a lot of cost early when you mm-hmm. hire a functional leader. Versus, uh, did you guys ha- debate those different approaches? And in retrospect, you know, what would you, what do you think about the approach that makes sense?
1: There's merit to both. No, yeah. it's it's very difficult. Um, there's some people that. I think will thrive and and grow as fast as the company and and do that and there are others that enjoy more the earlier stage, mm. so it depends. I, I think there's merit to both. I don't have honestly a yeah. clear one or the other, mm. but in general, Sarwa, if you like the way we've staffed has been much more uh, like our tenure I think is much higher because people stick around. We've built a really good culture, so mm. we. In some cases, we've brought in uh, an external, and some areas we've promoted as much as possible. So mm. it really depends on the individual and yeah, on a case by case basis. Yeah.
0: and when you when you kind of think about the journey, what what are some pivotal moments where you look back and you think about that decision really set us in the right direction? To get to where we where we needed to get to, what were some of those pivots, those decisions that you look back on and you're like, mm. thank God we made that decision. Yeah, there's a few of those, and there's the opposite
1: also. Um,
0: That's the next question. <laughs> if, if you want to start there, go ahead. No,
1: I'll start with the good stuff. I uh, I would say hiring in general, like something we've done, uh, we've done really well. So these these decisions, we've taken our time, and sometimes waited before. Uh, yeah, hiring, also firing sometimes where it doesn't work out. We, we've we acted like re- relatively quickly once we saw we, we tried to bring in someone that was uh, a bad fit for the rest of the team and it didn't really work out. So we, we, we acted fast in that scenario. Um, focus, I think, is, is something we're, we're known for because today you have multiple products, but for the longest time we were just doing one thing, which is robo-advisory. Mm. When a lot of... Uh, yeah, like when you think of venture and a lot of the pressure you get is to get into other verticals, other markets. So so our ability to just stay focused on do, on building a brand on one product first, I think is another decision we, we like. And even uh, in a B2C way, I'm not sure if you face this, but for us, we've been, initially there was a lot of push towards B2B, B2B. Mm. And we've had some investors that passed on our first round because they wanted to see a B2B angle that then joined us later, um, because our view was like they're two different businesses, mm-hmm. so, so it's not a channel, and so that's another decision that we've taken to build the brand, and I think COVID really helped us, because we did try to do B2B, but we brought in more assets in a quarter than, um, through like the, our B2C angle really took off during the COVID uh, like pandemic, there was a lot of people that were investing and saving. So so yeah. In terms, of a lot of it in terms of people, business model, um, going remote, something definitely. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of. I think it simplified a lot uh, how we retain people, how we how we run the company. Yeah, these are some of them.
0: How do you, how do you debate the focus ideas? Right. So, when something comes your way and. I mean, in theory, especially when you're early in your journey mm-hmm. or earlier going back to the confidence conversation, you know, I felt that I've I've as I've earned my stripes and I've done more of this, I have more conviction, more confidence in my own yeah. capability. But earlier you're sitting down in front of an investor and they're like, This is what you should be doing. You're like, Oh shit, maybe yeah. that's what I should be doing. So how do you in the conversation of focus in the context of focus how did did you break down how was your thought process to break down what's the right approach Mm -hmm. and
1: then build a conviction that I'm going to agree to disagree yeah I took I took mistakes honestly I was Mm. really guilty of uh, having an investor meeting and then calling Ajar or the tech team or or Nadine if it's a campaign on marketing Mm. to be like we need to do this because X and I feel like initially you you under you you undervalue some of your own prioritization and mm. you look up to people that have millions of dollars to invest in you. Mm. Um, but I th- we've, with time, we've learned that we know our, our specific focus actually more. That's why they're investing in us in the first place. Yeah. So until that click, we were guilty of trying to go in, in a bunch of directions. And you also want to build a relationship, but it's... Um, With time, I think one thing that really uh, changed our course is um, a book called Shape Up, Mm. by the founder of Basecamp or 37 Signals, and and he has a very he has a very great content around product, which is to think certain things such as like the default of any idea is no, as opposed to so there's he almost says like 95 percent of ideas won't get selected. And, and these are some, that's a concept even that's present in hedge funds, by the way, where when you have an investment idea, I can't. I don't know if it was you or someone that told me that, but there's a, a hedge fund basically that has a, a Google form mm. where by the time you fill out the, Gov, the Google form, the majority of ideas will be dropped and people won't end up submitting them so that you kind of go through a filtering process and educate people on like only the best ideas of the organization will will make it because it's really difficult as a product person to keep saying no all the time. So it just took awareness that initially, you think you're not doing enough because you don't have uh, the right resources, you're understaffed, but eventually you get to learn that uh, that constraint of not being able to do all these ideas is actually a good thing and forces to to work on some of the best ideas you have at the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I agree with you to a, a huge extent which is one of the things you learn later in the journey versus the beginning is being confident that i know my space mm-hmm. to a, a big uh, to a big degree more than the majority of investors i want to sit with yeah. right uh, and to a certain extent my view on this is most investors will try to add value by giving ideas mm-hmm. And so if my if I measure the v- amount of value creation I give by the number of ideas I give, then if I if I'm not saying anything, then I'm not creating value for yeah. me, right. But it's to a certain extent d- dilutive and destructive to an entrepreneur to
1: be just taking in all those all those ideas. Hundred percent. And there's also there there's certain ideas or advice that I've gotten that was too early. Yeah. So I've had when we first started, I, I've had people that told me you should launch uh, a trading platform, and we had barely gone live with our robo, and we were so excited to have launched a yeah. robo service. And we we're like, come on, how can you not see how amazing this is? What are you, are you telling me to go into a new thing already? Yeah. And we ended up doing trading, and and I wish I did it sooner for mm. sure. Mm but we weren't just ready yet to think of a vertical expansion because I think VCs and investors will think in a address total addressable market vertical. And you're just so in the weeds sometimes that you just want to make sure this thing works and, and people like it. Mm. So there's also the wrong advice at the wrong time. Yeah. But I'm guilty. I realize after like, once you, once you sit with certain founders as well, I think we're all guilty of eventually we'll start to give advice. Yeah. It's, it's almost, it's a human behavior. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I think the maturity aspect of, I think just life in general, not only in business, is a large part of becoming more mature is being able to listen yeah. with open ears, but then having the filters on where that advice gets allocated, right? So is it in the thanks but no thanks bucket, thanks but i need to noodle on it more mm-hmm. uh and noodle on it more and maybe it's something for another time but it's getting, getting parked not disposed and then the other bucket is god damn it i wish i did this earlier i should i uh thanks for that yeah right yeah um so it's like being able it took me a long time where i was just when someone gave me advice for me personally it almost get defensive mm-hmm. right i'm mm-hmm. like oh like what's this guy saying like he has no idea so it took me a while to be able to say, actually, I'm gonna listen with no emotion, so I can actually listen. And then once I hear it, I comp- like I put it in those in those buckets. Yeah, yes, yeah, but and I think another part of it is the team, right? So when your team scales, your team has suggestions, ideas, complaints, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. feedback. Mm-hmm. And I think the other part is as you listen to the team. Figuring out almost how big of an issue is this? Is this like an anecdote or is it something we need to work on? Uh, and how big of an opportunity is this? Is this something where someone's just throwing out an idea or
1: yeah. is this person really on something that could be huge? Yeah, I agree. And, and that's, I, I guess, that's a benefit of like asking our, our customer experience team or customer support team. If, without thinking, think fast. The top three things at the moment that pe- that people are asking about, mm. and you'll start. They'll start typing right away, and you won't see that l- that long of a lag before you you do that. So in parallel, sometimes we do like ro- a roadmap, and a lot we we uh, we try to come up our for our first half of the year plan. Mm. But in addition to that, it's like what are the top three things that you're often asked about? Um, and there's a survey called the Product Market Fit Survey. Mm. That I really, really enjoyed uh, working on uh, with uh, with our with Robin, who, who leads our product team. Basically, it was you ask your customers. You start by asking, "How disappointed would you be if Sarwa no longer exists?" And if you get a forty percent very disappointed, then you're on. T- you're, you found product market fit. That's kind of one way of making it numerical. Mm. And then what's cool is you start to. The three answers are very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not disappointed at all. And the approach here is to remove those that are don't like you that much because mm. you, it's going to be very difficult to make them happy. Mm. But to focus on the other, on the two other buckets, mm. and then they start to tell you. Like for us, it was really clear that we had to open a, a, a local account for people to transfer their money instead of sending it to our brokerage. Hmm. or um or to launch another vertical when you ask them who would you use if not sarwa the main answer was interactive brokers which is a trading platform hmm. so when you're all right well it's in our face like the number one answer is by by a landslide is um is this player who's doing that so it, it can help a lot just also to ask customers 100 uh, certain, certain questions
0: yeah 100 percent. and have you faced any scenarios where you've disagreed with your customers where yes. they've given you something like, I don't think they see the next evolution of this, and so, or, or, or for another reason, They're yeah,
1: yeah, I think it's almost like the anti use case. So, for example, there are some things that come up early on uh, where it was just too small, so they would ask for local stocks, but the implication of building something like that were was huge, um, or, or sometimes they would ask they're asking for a desktop version of what we're doing and add like a lot of features to the point that it would replicate what's out there as a, as a trading platform. So then we would alienate basically the first timers, which are 70% of our, of our users. So however, I would say that one mistake we've made is initially when someone said, we used to say, don't pick stocks, diversify, invest in an ETF. An ETF will outperform... Uh, the mid 90 to 95% of active investors why wouldn't you take it so we used to constantly actually disagree with them mm. but that in hindsight that was a big mistake because you can instead of there's one. it's one thing to educate but no one wants to be also told what to do and you also you had a bit of that t- like without without uh, saying it too negative but it, you're a bit of like the naysayer or a teacher yeah, uh, some arrogance comes with it yeah. there's, there's a lot of arrogance that comes with it so we switch to being like okay well listen if you, you we realize people are going to do it anyway actually mm, mm. so you can you might as well enable and give people what they want and just make it better and simpler and more cost efficient mm. so so yeah I, I'm not sure if that answers it but Disagreeing, I think, is initially we thought we were yeah, we we were onto something, yeah. but with time we realized that was there was like a, a glaring product vertical that we could have worked on uh, earlier. Yeah, yeah. I was
0: um, talking with uh, Mazen Hawi on, actually on the podcast, and one of the things he said which stuck with me was, uh, product discovery is to a. El- large extent numerical but there's also a large extent which is as a founder you have to be kind of at the forefront of it because the large extent of it is uh, an intangible feeling a gut Mm -hmm. feeling on and it's to a certain extent art as well so it's how do you marry the the art with the data to come to something that you think and it requires a lot of conviction. I think a lot of the best founders, I mean, if you think about the West, right? A lot of these founders were notorious for just having huge conviction mm-hmm. around, whether it was Jeff with Bezos with the, with the Kindle or Mark with Newsfeed, uh, Mark, like I know all these guys, you know, we're on a <laughs> first name basis. But you know, to a large extent, I think founders have to, there's no right answer. You have to find the balance between mm-hmm. listening but then also being stubborn to a certain extent and having the conviction
1: that this will work. Yeah. Yeah, it took a lot of that actually in the early days. We had so many people especially like coming to Dubai for the first time our main contacts were bankers mm. and they were saying this will not this will not work because there's no retail endorsement in DIFC. The DIFC the is for institutions and wholesale and you can't build a retail proposition from the ifc or you cannot uh, do kyc not know your customer or account opening online so you, you really need to be stubborn because you're dealing with people that are in the industry they've been doing this for 20 years they have the reg they're really close to the regulator so that stuff yeah it's it's really key yeah the one thing i've adopted uh
0: is uh, I love it when people tell me it's been done like this for forever, or we've been doing this for twenty years or ten years. I love hearing that. <laughs> yeah. It's like yes, you know, <laughs> yeah. you guys missed missed the window of opportunity, mm-hmm. and you're not going to see it. Mm-hmm. So the flip side of the earlier question, which is uh, those decisions, those pivots that
1: didn't mm-hmm. go quite the way you, you wanted them to. Yeah, I would say the main learning, um, the first one was around governance and what's the role of um, a board compared to what's the role of the management and the people running the company. This was pre-COVID and remote was very taboo back then. And it sat at the board level and we ended up having like a, a shakeup between people that were super anti-remote and people that were remote. And ultimately, it took me time to realize the decision should have been, this is a management-related governance matter and not a board matter. But given it's, even for a lot of VCs, it's their first, the fir- their first time investing or, mm-hmm. or doing this. I think there was a bit of a, yeah, there was friction that was unnecessary because we should have like uh, clearly outlined what's uh, the roles and responsibilities of each. So that's something that once you have that mindset, you can more confidently say you, you do have a say in this or or not and now that, that that's one of uh, the areas i would say it's the founders should know more their uh, like the role that some of their decisions should be playing at or or not it's gonna be one of those things that will uh, you'll
0: yeah. remember tonight when you're microwaving something <laughs> most likely you know, what's happening god damn it man this is this was the thing <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you. Send it to me in voice note. We'll stitch it into the audio.
1: Yeah. No, when you asked it earlier, like three ideas. Like, oh, yeah. This one. That one. No. But it'll, it'll come back. It'll come back.
0: Uh, how long have you been doing this for now?
1: It's been five years. Yeah.
0: How do you um, how do you keep the the energy? How do you maintain the stamina to to keep fighting the good fight?
1: I think acknowledging uh, cycles, finding a like a worthy challenge. I like an environment where it's. There's always a big challenge, and I think I've learned that before you know it, eventually it'll come back. And sometimes you there'll be a few months where you you feel like you're you're getting the hang of it, and before you know it, uh, you're back there again. So I think the way to, to advance at the speed you're you're meant to advance in a venture-backed startup, it, it forces that like that stamina or that challenge to keep going.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think you have to have that you have to like challenges to do this the one thing the one thing that I'd say I've started to approach differently is I used to define challenges getting like slapped in the face and you have to figure out how to kind of solve through that right? Like, oh this is a new obstacle we didn't think of this now we have to go figure out how to solve it uh, and then you're right. So what would happen is you'd solve that and then you'd have like a small window of, oh, I can breathe again. And then it'd be like, oh, something new came up. We didn't see this coming. And so, and so but but maybe, maybe it's recency bias because we had COVID and then mm-hmm. we had uh, a window where funding was quite hard. And so we had to get through that. And it's like, if I think about the last three major milestones we had to get through, they were just all adversarial versus... But one thing we're doing this year, you know, I woke up uh, and I said, you know, God, if if aliens come from the heavens Mm -hmm. and take over Earth, uh, that's a challenge and we'll figure out how to solve that. But what if, you know, barring any crazy event, what is the challenge we can create for Mm ourselves that's more opportunity focused, right? And so... uh, you know, I was talking to the team. Af- you know, af- after we, the first few days of the new year, everyone's breathing, and we said, "Listen, you know, to a large extent, last year was the toughest year of kind of Bezat's history, and so now it's about mm. we've built the foundation, the pedigree, the battle scars of fighting. So now there's nothing to fight per se. So how do we go out and just?" build on top of the foundation we have in a very very and set very ambitious and aggressive goals mm-hmm. and that becomes our new new challenge nice. Um and so what I realized uh, you know one of the, our team members she said uh, said you guys don't just don't stop huh <laughs> okay like we can't. and so what, what the reason I bring that story up I think one thing I realized along the journey so like similar to your first three four years I'm like next year it's gonna get better next year it's gonna get better next year, <laughs> next year. And then something happened where I was just like, actually there's no better, This it just is. Mm-hmm. This is what I signed up for. And so I started thinking about, okay, if this is the way it's gonna be, and this is what I've chosen, then I need to adapt to thriving in this circumstance, whether it's in my relationship, right? Or whether it's my f- on a physical level or emotional level or a mental level. Um, and I think that's something going back, I wish I did differently, is coming in with that realization from the get go that this is we all signed up for a marathon where you just are also sprinting yeah. for all the whole time. Right. Yeah,
1: know, and it's challenging to yeah. to it's much easier to rely on external adversity to shape what you need to work on. Yeah, but eventually you're right, you have to you have to figure it out on your own mm. when it becomes less obvious what's the uh, of course, funding and all these—they they're big enough on its own. But eventually, when you once you've solved the big areas of your mm-hmm. product, mm-hmm. you want to make sure you're spending it the best way and not mm-hmm. on incremental things that won't won't be as big of a of a value driver. Yeah, I can relate a lot to that, um, and that's why we got excited when we had the like going from one product to becoming more of a personal finance app with many. Like the first reaction was like, "You're do oh, all right." So we finally launched something that we were just getting comfortable with the current platform, yeah. and now you're. We had to do another brokerage integration and uh, and, and just basically restart in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how do you
0: balance life and work? I know that from conversations we've had on a personal level. You and I are similar in the context that. Uh, we enjoy spending time with our significant other it's time we both uh, we both cherish and so uh, that's something you and i have in common so i'm just interested to learn o- from you on how do you what are some of the things you've put in place to keep nurturing your personal relationships while also you know trying to build mm-hmm. a,
1: a business i think i've built a system with time that I haven't edited it uh, in a while, so it's less fresh, but I think without necessarily, like in the first few years, I was constantly thinking about or changing my way of working so that I can completely be disconnected or present at, at certain times mm-hmm. from uh, from work. So, and in, in day-to-day things like, like on weekends, for example, uh, initially we would go and work through the... Work through the weekend. To be fair, it helped because I was doing long distance the first two (laughs)
0: It helps when when your significant other isn't here. Yeah. (laughs) Because then there is no work-life balance. It's just
1: work. Exactly. And to a point where I moved actually to Marina away from the IFC because I was like, all right, I'm just living and breathing the IFC every day. But eventually when uh, my wife Wendy, she moved here, it was like, all right, well, that's the first time um, I've had the balance. I've had an easier time because she's a she's a workaholic. <laughs> to be fair, also, <laughs> um, so I should
0: ask her how she, she balances yeah. it.
1: Yeah. So no, I think it's and uh, in our it's it's specific to each yeah. situation. And for us, like we're both into we're both driven. We're both really focusing on on um, on just building and 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 working. And at the same time, on weekends, however, I barely work uh, and try to completely disconnect. And during the week, I think it really depends on the week, but mornings are, yeah, trying to work out as much as possible. And it eventually became part of, if I don't do it, things will start to, it'll show. It'll show. I feel like, all right, there's more anger, there's more more stress. So it's a self-balancing act.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I I mean, I think to a large extent, um, it's like a, piece of the pie right Mm -hmm. and if one if the pie is fully occupied by one thing you just start to crumble it's not the other things start to crumble like i start to crumble if i go multiple weeks without working out or multiple weeks where i feel like Mm -hmm. i'm not spending quality time with my wife i feel like it's not that my impact on work is greater it's far reduced actually Mm -hmm. uh so I, I completely agree with you. It's about finding that balancing act along the way. Uh, and I think many of us are uh, guilty. Uh, but I think it's a necessary thing you have to go through, but guilty of not paying attention to all the different parts we need to pay attention to in, in life. Uh, but I think it's just one of those things you, you learn by trial by fire. You yeah. mess it up, then you're like, okay, I need to readjust, recalibrate.
1: Yeah, and there's certain people. There's also, I think it's cultural. Like I was lucky to have worked early in my first job with uh, a, great, uh, a great boss that had a family life. Mm. And we were doing really great work and finishing our project by seven, which in consulting is unheard, unheard of. of. Yeah. And, and I've, I had maybe, I can count on one hand the number of times I've worked uh, after that. And you, you actually start to realize if things run well, you're finishing on time and and at 7. If things aren't going well, there's an if inefficient a crisis. That's where you need to work longer. Mm. So I think I've just learned to appreciate that working hard is... like The whole hustle culture and working hard is, is not something that was ever like uh, too attractive. Yeah. Um, and we've built a culture around like just avoiding FaceTime and all of these things that don't lead to a better product or campaign or, or customer service. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How do you manage, um, productivity, whatever the buzzword is, right? I think there's a lot of companies that have said, okay, we tried to work remotely. We're coming back to full office. Mm
1: -hmm. How have you guys tried to figure out? Yeah. I'm disappointed in how many people went back to the office to be honest, but to each their own. Yeah. We we were, um, the thing is, our, so Jad in a lot of ways moved as a digital nomad, I call mm. him. Mm. So he moves a lot. And mm. and when we started, he was in Montreal and then Paris. So it forced a lot of working remotely as a initial stage. And Nadine used to have a, a, like a routine where she would pick up the kids around two to three and then work from home after. So organically, when we first started, we realized like, Slack was the, home, the the head office, actually. Yeah. It wasn't the DIFC. Mm. And especially in Dubai, I found it super, sometimes awkward, especially in FinTech, where you were forced to take an office in DIFC mm. and didn't want to pay DIFC rent mm-hmm. initially. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the environment made it so that working from a coworking wasn't as attractive mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, so remote was, we enjoyed like, just working remotely. And a lot of our culture is around trust, accountability. So, as, so things people are very self uh, or like are autonomous. And then COVID came along, and we're like, all right, that's The cherry was, on top. Yeah, it was a cherry on top because we realized why a lot of people were talking about working from home. For us, it was a it was a breeze mm. to go through it, especially that the stock market is on U.S. hours. Mm, mm. So, so it also helped us hire. Even we have like when people go to the U.S it's great because we extended actually our support hours till 1 a.m. Mm. So we liked when people like visit the U.S. or sp- like, yeah, please go work, uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> spend your summer in the U.S. Yeah. So there's a lot of things, or if someone is a night person, mm. uh, we started shifting schedules because yeah. it allowed us to offer customer service from 9 to nine a.m. to 1 a.m. Mm. So we start, started seeing it, the remote opportunity as uh, like, how can we go and go on offense as opposed to the general perception of it which is uh productivity right Mm. but with all of this said i we we've we've experimented a lot and realized um like two times a year as like a retreat is is really good to bring the team together for two full weeks ideally i think we would do this quarterly but that there's a you almost like refill a battery that you that can last you a quarter yeah once you meet in person, that that mm. it works well. But the weeks where we we actually meet up, we get a lot less done mm. um, because we're just so used to yeah. doing our thing. But at the same time, that's the ho- the whole point is to reconnect. Yeah, yeah. I've uh,
0: I've heard you say a couple of things today. I, I like this idea of find your wasta. I think uh, <laughs> in in the early days, uh, and even now, you know, I'm like we we're starting in Saudi or we started in Saudi, so. Uh, I'm trying to build my network very deep but uh, you vocalized it in a way that I hadn't thought about it but find your wasta, uh, focus on the next milestone don't get distracted or let the end journey be daunting Um, this idea of being confident that you know your space Mm -hmm. and not getting too hung up on what investors say in the early days uh, i like this idea of ask for quick responses from your support team they probably have a lot of good uh, ideas uh it's been fun talking to you in front of a mic i know we we catch up every now and then over walks into the, the ifc but uh thanks for
1: agreeing to do this of course it's a pleasure it's really fun